I remember with tremendous fondness my uh, previous conversation with today's morning show guest, Blake J. Harris, who is uh, responsible for a book we talked about called Console Wars, Sega Nintendo, and the Battle That Defined a Generation, uh, a book which is uh, soon going to uh, uh, see new life as a feature film. Blake Harris has written very, very effectively on a number of different topics related to the world of technology and entertainment. And Blake Harris really believed that there might not be another story out there nearly as interesting as the one that uh, he told in his first book, Console Wars. He was wrong. <laughs> in fact, he uh, was able to uncover a story every bit as riveting. And uh, it is the story hooked up in the breakthrough of virtual reality that was achieved by a small upstart company called Oculus and by a number of different brilliant innovators who came together and chiefly a, a young teenager who uh, was really at the heart of this effort. And uh, it is a story of, of false starts and... Uh, broken promises and uh, potential unrealized as well as thrilling breakthroughs and uh, all of the potential in the world and then all of it changed so dramatically and uh, and in some ways uh, a lot of the hopes and dreams that were wrapped up in this uh, were kind of left uh, very much battered and burned. Uh, and this amazing story, complicated as it is, is told so incredibly well in this new book by Blake J. Harris, published by Day Street, which is an imprint of William Morrow. The book is titled The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. And I am thrilled to be able to hook up once again with Blake J. Harris uh, to talk about his newest book. Blake J. Harris, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thanks so much, Greg. I'm, I'm flattered by that very kind introduction, and it's true. I, I was dubious that I'd ever find a story as interesting and compelling with such larger-than-life characters as Console Wars, and I guess it remains to be seen about the impact of virtual reality in Oculus, but for the story itself, you know, it, it certainly turned out not at all how I expected and really just was an epic tale. Incredible. Before we get started in the kind of nuts and bolts of this specific story and some of the uh, really intriguing figures who are part of it, I wonder if you could kind of help uh, our listeners really understand this whole notion of virtual reality. And I especially appreciate that your book includes uh, as much historical context as it does. I mean, virtual reality is a very new technology, of course, although in the grand scheme of things, when it comes to technology, it's also been around for a while. And right. one of the reasons, one of the only ways we can really fully understand this latest breakthrough is to understand where this whole notion of virtual reality has been before. So first of all, for any of our listeners, and I think there are probably more than a few who really don't understand even what that term means, help us understand what virtual reality has been and, and is. Sure. Uh, well, first off, I want to say that it's totally understandable if you've ever heard of virtual reality or VR, since it has, to your point, had so many false starts and false promises in the past. And, and second of all, I just want to quickly say that 
with this book, my first book, with everything I ever write, I always write with my grandmother in mind, um, you know, trying to think, how could I craft a story this about high technology that, that someone who's not familiar with the subject matter or the technology could enjoy? And really, it's a story about people and ideas. So, you know, even if you're not familiar with virtual reality, you'll definitely be able to follow along with the book, and it should be a breezy read. But virtual reality, to your um, point, you know, it's been around since the 1960s, and it's also been around in science fiction. And, and it's essentially this idea of putting on a headset or a pair of goggles or maybe one day even in the future a pair of contact lenses and being immersed in a computer-generated world. Um, you know, those of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s remember Virtual Boy from Nintendo or these, uh, like, uh, on-site location virtual reality setups in malls usually, like Dactyl Nightmare and these great, um, or I guess terrible polygon based uh, VR experiences from the 90s. And, you know, I guess in its most extreme form, but conceptually kind of gets across with VR is you can think about the matrix where you are physically in one location, but you are plugging in or connecting in some way, in that case, in a very extreme way, um, and then experiencing a completely different reality. And so, um, you know, yes, uh, uh, VR has been around for a little while, but it it really required some breakthroughs over the past 10 years to get it to a place where it could be commercially viable and affordable. And uh, miraculously, it all sort of started with a 19-year-old kid living in a trailer in Long Beach, California. Hmm. We'll get to that trailer and that story in just a moment. Um, I want to talk about a couple of things that are in your author's note. One of them is the fact that uh, you talk about being granted uh, what you call essentially unlimited access uh, to the employees of Oculus Facebook uh, for the purposes of writing this book. And that at some point, that access was withdrawn. (laughs) But I wonder if you could just say a quick word about kind of the nature of that access and then at what point that access went away and why, at least as far as you know. Um, Sure. So um, the reason that it's Oculus slash Facebook is that, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Oculus, this company founded by the 19-year-old kid I mentioned earlier, uh, within two years, in 2014, you know, from 2012 to 2014, the company ends up selling for $3 billion to Facebook. And uh, so a couple of years after that, um, after trying for quite a while, I was able to get access. Uh, Fortunately, one of the big benefits of having written a book before, which I hadn't done with console wars was the people at oculus read that book and really enjoyed it and that helped me get this access and and basically because of the kinds of stories that i like to tell the kind that my grandma would like these character-driven human stories it's incredibly important to me to get access so that i can help readers feel like they're in the room with these people in the minds of these people and so it started off really great uh that access was granted in february of 2016 this was one month before oculus launched their first consumer product the first real big virtual reality consumer product in in a decade really and uh and another story did not turn out at all how i had expected or how any of them had expected um they weren't they were not nearly as successful with their launch and then more importantly the founder of the company the person i've alluded to a couple of times palmer lucky the teenager a few years earlier um he wound up being fired for the company for controversial potentially illegal reasons on the part of facebook and uh, as I started to probe into that, that's what eventually led to 
the access being cut off after they tried, uh, you know, they, they lied on several occasions about his departure. And, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, I guess, unsurprisingly, it did not end so well when they were trying to give me misinformation about what has happened. Right. And then uh, when they withdrew your access, uh, did they ga- give any explanation for why? That's a good question. Um, no. I mean, they didn't, they didn't even tell me. I found out from the sources. And the fact that the sources told me is kind of an interesting indication and, and would end up um, sort of being prescient because over the, the next year after that happened, I, I probably got even more info than I had previously because people felt a responsibility to, I guess, step up and make sure that I had the truth because they knew that their employer was lying to me and, and to a lot of their employees. Explain what kind of a gauntlet it was to gather all of the information that you did about this story, which, uh, except for the kind of the historical background, is actually a story that unfolds over a relatively tight time frame, and yet yep. so much happens so quickly <laughs> that there is just a ton to talk about. Uh, just give our listeners some sense of how many people you spoke to, how many documents you poured over, and mm-hmm. just, in a sense, just how difficult a, a, a task it was to gather all of this information together and then form it into a cohesive, coherent whole. <laughs> I, I, I'm feeling like exhaustion just thinking about that, because it, <laughs> it was a grueling process. It was a wonderful process, and, and I loved doing it, but but, you know, it was hard. I think the simplest way to sort of sum up the experience was, is just to say that the book was originally due to my publisher in September of 2016. And, well, here we are today, two, two plus years later, and it's finally coming out. Um, part of that is because the story changed, um, as we were, you know, I was just talking about earlier with the firing of the founder. And then, and then also just um, the nature of, of sort of this challenge. You know, my first book, Council Wars, was about something that had happened 20 years ago. So from day one of writing the book, I knew the beginning, middle, and end. And, you know, the book changed, but history didn't change. Whereas in this case, it was an evolving story, which made it a little bit more difficult. Um, but what helped me so much and what you had referred to is I, I just, you know, I ended up conducting hundreds of interviews um, over the course of three and a half years. Um, I got to know these people really, really well. That was a nice byproduct of it taking so long. And uh, then I also had access to over 25,000 documents, mostly emails, but also a lot of internal company emails and, uh, uh, sorry, uh, internal company memos. And, and that's just, you know, for me as a, as a documentarian and a historian, that was just like Christmas morning for me every day going through that stuff and, and just reconstructing the story. And, uh, and then, to answer like the final part of your question, yeah, the hardest part was crafting all of that into a compelling narrative because just because it's you know it's an interesting, juicy piece of information, it still needs to fit into the story, or otherwise I wouldn't include it. And uh, and I guess a, a big part of it was just thinking about this story in a way that it would be valuable um, and compelling to anyone who's just interested in starting a company or in entrepreneurship and. And looking at the challenges of starting a company, in this case, it turned out to be one of the most successful companies of all time, at least in the short term to the point when they sold it. Um, but just looking at what it takes to start a company and how much luck it's based on and how much of a team effort it really is, even though we often think about it as 
you know, one person or one idea and, and getting all of that together. Right. I think that's what I ended up learning the most along with, well, just about everything else. This is not a world <laughs> I'm particularly familiar with uh, nor comfortable in. Uh, but that idea of, of the sort of complicated machinery that is part of any sort of startup uh, all of the different elements that are essential to its success and all of the different things that can go wrong in major and <laughs> minor ways and yep. how chemistry between people collaborating when you get a whole bunch of geniuses in, in one room with various yep. ideas. I mean, we just don't stop to think about all that is behind that product that we've just downloaded or bought off the shelf. Absolutely. But one thing that we certainly do often probably think about or at least can relate to is just the familial atmosphere of working with a small group of people for many, many hours. I'm sure that most people at some point in their life, you know, have been part of some organization or some professional effort where, you know, you're hunkering down for a long, sustained period of time and people start to feel less like even, uh, you know, coworkers or friends and it starts to become more like family. And as a family, um, some of that stuff you mentioned, like these are big personalities. It's, it's mostly good, but there's some, uh, getting on each other's nerves and, and, you know, but ultimately there's a lot of love behind it, especially when you're all focused on the same thing. Absolutely. And by the way, speaking of family, I just love that notion that when you write books like console wars or this newest book, the history of the future, that you're thinking about your own grandmother and trying oh, to write it. a book that would make sense to her. I mean, the simplest <laughs> idea in the world. And yet, boy, that makes sense when you're writing something like this. Thank you. I, I, that was sort of a breakthrough that I reached while writing Tile Tours. And I'll happy to report that although my grandma has only thus far read the first chapter, she really loved it. Though her one criticism was that, oh, not of the writing, but was of, you know, Palmer Lucky, the genius um, who was homeschooled and building these things in his trailer. My grandma said that he should have stayed in school because he ends up dropping out of college to start this company. And grandma says, you know, you got to stay in school, but I don't know if he was right in this case because Palmer is a pretty smart guy and he's gone on to do pretty impressive things. Right. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Blake J. Harris. Uh, he is the author of Console Wars, but his newest book is called The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. He traces the amazing story of the development of virtual reality in very exciting new directions, uh, chiefly uh, out of the genius of a very intriguing young man by the name of Palmer Lucky. You begin the story in Chapter 1 in the spring of 2012. And uh, at this point, I think it's be great for you to tell our listeners a little bit about who Palmer Lucky was at this point in time, and in particular, the intriguing trailer in which he was living. Sure. So Palmer Lucky in 2012 was a 19-year-old dreamer, uh, video game lover, and a kid who had become obsessed with virtual reality. And, and one thing to remember, you know, we talked earlier about how uh, listeners may not know about virtual reality, which is very understandable. Um, but, you know, think back seven years ago, even less people knew about it. I, you know, I remember from growing up in the 90s how much it had failed. And at that time, it, when the story begins, virtual reality really was sort of a technological punchline, similar to jetpacks or flying cars, this thing that we'd all been promised but never happened and sort of seemed silly in retrospect. But uh, Palmer Lucky was one of the few people in the world, um, literally, probably, you know, in the double digits 
at that point in time who cared about virtual reality and still believed in virtual reality. And so um, I remember one of the first times he was telling me about living in a trailer and how he had gutted that trailer and been working on, you know, just basically retrofitted it to be um, optimized for building virtual reality headsets. And I said, you know, what you're describing sounds a lot like uh, Walter White's meth van on Breaking Bad, except, you know, your your trailer has been optimized for building virtual reality headsets and not cooking um, drugs. And he said, yeah, that's a pretty fair comparison. That's kind of what it looked like. Um, so he's a bit of a, uh, a mad scientist, um, hacker, tinkerer, and uh, he is dreaming about bringing virtual reality to the masses, particularly to gamers. And he is, you know, at that point in time, he's taking community college classes. Uh, he's not able to get a job. Nobody's really interested in VR anyway. So things aren't really going that well for him, but he loves what he does. And, uh, and he's going to keep doing it no matter what. And then he gets a big break when uh, in, on a afternoon in April of 2012, he receives a message from a video game legend named John Carmack, who is the creator of popular first-person shooter games like Doom and Wolfenstein and Quake and essentially pioneered that whole genre. And John Carmack, um, like Palmer, is, is now becoming interested in virtual reality. And he um, has bought every headset on the market and is shocked by how terrible they all are, um, given that the last time he really tried anything was in the 90s. And then he hears rumors about a kid named Palmer Tech, um, which is the handle that Palmer Lucky goes by, and ends up asking Palmer if he could borrow one of his headsets and ends up finding that this headset made by this teenage kid um, that he invented is not only way better than everything else out there made by Sony and these other big companies, but that this headset is also way cheaper. And so that sort of sets into motion um, this incredible excitement around Palmer Lucky's invention and uh, a company forms around that. Very, very quickly and in some very exciting ways. Let's uh, let's talk for a moment about that moment when when uh, Palmer Lucky is is first really interested in virtual reality and what the limitations were at that point. You 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 write at one point the only limit to the limitless possibilities of VR of virtual reality was computing power. The faster computers got, the better the graphics would be and the more real virtual worlds could feel. So it's almost as if uh, the world of, of computers needed to achieve a certain exactly. level in which uh, true virtual reality would finally be within grasp. But help us understand this notion of, of faster computers. Why does, it, why does it matter how fast a computer is? That's a good question. So essentially, you know, the vir virtual reality, uh, to overgeneralize, you know, consists of two components, the hardware, which is like the headset you put on, the glasses, the goggles, the contact lenses, and then the software, you know, which is the content or the program that's going to power it. And um, if the, the, the faster the computing power is, the more information the software will be able to pump into the hardware and the quicker it'll be able to go, which in virtual reality is everything because you want to trick the brain and create the illusion that you really are in a different place. And a big part of that is um, that when you turn your head or move around, the it feels like you're actually in a different place, uh, meaning that the world does not move with you. So like when in real life, if you turn your head to the left, what you're looking at initially does not also turn to the left with you. It stays fixed in the world. And so 
you have to create this virtual world where everything around you stays fixed except for you. And so computing power is critical. And, and a big part of that is the tracking, the ability for it to know that when you're turning your head left, how much it should show you a different image. And uh, I mentioned that to say that a big part of why Palmer was able to make these breakthroughs and why Oculus was able to initially succeed was because of all the um, progress and innovations that had been made in, in smartphones. You know, if not for that, VR would not have taken off. And, and early on, they had a slogan at Oculus that said, if it's not in a smartphone, it's not in a Oculus Rift. Um, you know, that sort of behind-the-scenes slogan that anything that they did had to be based on cell phone components. And so, you know, that, that's just sort of early on. I had never really thought about that, never really realized that. And it's just with a little a little bit of a eureka moment for me, though maybe it was obvious to others that like, wow, you know, a lot of times these technologies converge and overlap and, in a, and, you know, and progress in one thing is what ultimately makes other things possible, even though, you know, it never explicitly seems that way. But that was one of the cool components of the uh, rise of virtual reality. It sounds like uh, Palmer Lucky and uh, John Carmack, this uh, uh, huge... Uh, figure in the in the whole field of of technology and gaming in particular uh were kindred spirits in a couple of very important ways but part of what seemed to be at the heart of of both of their ideas was uh that this that there was what john carmack once uh said a moral imperative tied up in this whole notion of virtual right. reality and what it could mean in people's lives. Explain why he would talk about this in those kind of lofty terms and how Palmer Lucky was very much uh, a kindred spirit in that respect. Um, sure, that's a good point. Um, you know, and one thing we should mention is that not only was John Carmack this legendary game maker, but he was also one of Palmer Lucky's personal heroes. So you can imagine how that feels when your life is sort of not going in a great direction, and then out of the blue, you receive a message from one of the people that you've idolized since you were younger. Um, and, and they were kindred spirits. They're both, um, you know, hackers by nature, self-taught, and, and people who um, passion and, and passion for their work is everything. You know, they don't care who you are, what your skin color is, what your background is. If you can help with this project, you know, these projects that they're working on, They'll, they'll love you for it because they love their work. And, um, you know, John, John in the past had called virtual reality a moral imperative and, um, and what he meant by that, or at least how Palmer interpreted it and, and why a lot of people at, joined Oculus and felt that way is just that, you know, when you have a computer-generated world that you're uh, existing in when you put on a headset, you know, there's no such thing as scarcity. Um, everything is really just... <laughs> ones and zeros, it's all code. Um, and again, you know, you can think about the matrix, although it's probably best not to think about the dystopian aspects of that. But, you know, when, when Keanu Reeves' character, Neo, you know, you basically just uh, snap your fingers and you can have anything you want immediately. And uh, so I guess that's probably very good for the hedonist side of humans, but also just in terms of, um, the, the, I think the, the moral imperative stuff comes from the, the practical um, as, the aspects of that, you know, I, I live right now in a 400 square foot apartment, which is certainly more than enough for me and my wife. But let's say I lived in a very small place, or let's say I had a family in a very small place. Um, you know, you put on a headset and you can live in a mansion. 
and and if, if it's effective virtual reality, you can actually feel like you're there, um, and you can have anything and be anywhere in any, at any time, and it really breaks down um, a lot of socioeconomic barriers. Of course, it is a computer-generated world, but at some point, that computer-generated world becomes so uh, seemingly real and believable that um, you can accomplish much of the same things that you would in the normal world, but now have access to anything. Mm. So Palmer Lucky is trying to move the needle uh, in a f- in a field that already existed, in a technology that already existed, but which was not, yep. in a sense, achieving what it promised. I mean, when one put on one of these old virtual reality sets or glasses or whatever, uh, you really weren't transported into another reality as convincingly as the name would suggest. <laughs> so Correct. what were the kinds of things, the nuts and bolts sorts of things that this young teenager was trying to improve and, and, and how just working in a trailer, how was he able to begin that process of nudging the needle forward in terms of what virtual reality could be? Sure. So, you know, without getting too technical about it, um, just kind of thinking about that idea of believability, the, the core concept of good virtual reality is that you actually feel like you are somewhere else. And so, one of the, the problems with virtual reality is that people had focused so much on the hardware and, and like, you know, the lenses and the optical side of things that um, you had, a, a, that as computer computing power improved and technological capabilities improved, people had been tending to focus on uh, like improving the resolution and, and doing all these things, but in a very small, narrow space um, and, you know, basically having a very small field of view. So, you know, when we look, when we look straight forward, we see a lot of things in our peripheral vision. But the virtual reality headsets that were being made, uh, it, was, it was, you know, the, John Carmack once described it to me as like looking through um, a, a toilet paper holder, like you know, like, like or like wearing blinders on a horse. Like it's a very narrow view of the world, which is just not a natural way to exist. And so, one of the key things for Palmer was to have a very wide field of view so that you could look to your sides and, 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 you know, feel like you're in a different place. And, and that was also inspired by his love for video games. Cause he, he really did want to step into the games and, and try to accomplish that goal. And so um, that, that was a big part of, of his breakthrough. And then also realizing because so much can be done because there had been improvements in computing power. Um, he, even as a, as a hardware maker who wasn't super familiar with software, I'm not, not super familiar, but he wasn't an expert in software um, is the right way to say it. Um, he realized that the software should be doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And so in a way, it was almost like a perfect peanut butter and jelly combination when he connected with John Carmack, given that Palmer is a hardware expert and John is a software expert. Eventually, of course, a whole lot of other people begin coming on board. Because you know, one teenager in a trailer uh, is not going to ultimately be able <laughs> to create something that, that changes the world. At one point in your book, I think you talk about uh, the difference between creating a prototype and creating a product is yep. like night and day. I mean, to create one thing versus figuring out a way to create something that can be 
created and recreated and mass produced at a reasonable price and distributed to the world. Uh, I mean, that's a whole different thing. And of course, beyond yep. the scope of even a genius like like Palmer Lucky, uh, without spelling out every single person who figures prominently in this company taking shape, just say a word about that sort of painstaking process by which Palmer Lucky sought to find maybe other kindred spirits uh, who would be the right kind of collaborators and and could help him bring this to life. Sure. So it was absolutely a big team effort. And, you know, even just, the, you know, they brought on like 10 people early on and those 10 people, if not for each of them, this wouldn't have happened. But I think that for our purposes, it's probably best and, and most interesting to focus on, on one crew of people um, who are described in the book as the scale form mafia. Um, and really it's a, it's a, it's a group of entrepreneurs and, and, former programmers turned entrepreneurs, or some of them still still do coding, but it's a guy named Brendan Areeb, a guy named Nate Mitchell, and a guy named Mike Antonoff. And, and you know, their introduction to the story is an interesting one where after John Carmack demos Palmer Lucky's headset, there's, uh, you know, a lot of excitement and hype around virtual reality for the first time in years. And one of the people who hears about this is Brendan Areeb, who um, has successfully sold two companies in the video game space. And he arranges for a dinner with Palmer Lucky. And at that point, uh, Palmer is weighing his options. And he had just been offered a dream job to go do virtual reality work at Sony. Um, but at the same time, he had always kind of wanted to start his own company, as we know from the first chapter and his background. And uh, Brendan persuades Palmer to follow his dream and to start this company and to do so with his help. And uh, Brendan's help consists of, you know, an initial investment. And Brendan also then becomes the CEO of the company. And, and even in Palmer's, own, by, by Palmer's own admission, um, you know, he told me that there would be no Oculus without him, meaning Palmer, but that Brendan was the reason that Oculus succeeded and the reason that it really um, just, just catapulted. You know, Palmer's vision for the technology was very grand, but his vision for the company was very modest. Um, he, when he originally planned to launch Oculus, it was going to be, he hoped maybe a hundred headsets and he was going to build them um, in the, over the weekend in, a, in his parents' garage with, with a few friends and pay them in pizza. Um, and Brendan sort of had this grander vision of getting these headsets out to game developers, which was a really big decision as well, because you'd think that when you have a cool new product, the obvious thing to do would be to take it to consumers and sell it to them. But um, Brendan realized um, that there was this sort of, chicken egg problem with virtual reality that if you don't have any good games or content for the headsets, then no one's going to buy the headsets and no one's going to be making good games or content if nobody has headsets. So you have to sort of create this ecosystem of content in, the, in a way that you might think similar to the innovation of other mediums like radio or television. You know, radio and television are amazing breakthroughs and especially television I watch all the time, but without television shows, it's, it's worthless. And so to help um, facilitate the creation of all this content, they decided to focus their initial products exclusively on content makers and not the average consumer like you and I. And then by doing that, over the course of a few years, they were able to develop, um, you know, an ecosystem of content so that it will now be appealing to people like you and I. Right. Uh, one of the best stories about this involves the Kickstarter campaign that brought <laughs> in quite a, a an influx of, of, of capital. Uh just sketch for our listeners uh, what young Palmer Lucky had in mind for this Kickstarter campaign and what, for instance, some of these collaborators had in mind 
and what that Kickstarter campaign ultimately brought in. Yeah, so so as I was saying earlier, you know, Palmer had a big vision for the technology, but um, very humble expectations for his company. Uh, you know, he was hoping to maybe make $100,000 on Kickstarter, the popular crowdfunding site, and, and to sell it to, um, you know, maybe 100 people to sell this headset. Um, and Brendan and Nate and Mike, they, they believe that they could sell, you know, at least a million dollars worth of this. And uh, they ended up doing it even better than that. They sold a few million dollars worth of headsets. Um, and, and it was just this really amazing cinematic moment to me of they lost this Kickstarter. They don't know what to expect. Um, all of a sudden, you know, the, the number goes through the roof. They keep refreshing the page. And, you know, it goes from 20000 to 50000 100000 300000 uh, Meanwhile, they all have, or I guess not all, because Palmer didn't have a job at the time, but, but everyone else has day jobs or different jobs. And those guys are walking into their office and, and, and all their colleagues are just refreshing this thing as well um, and realizing that their, their colleagues are about to probably quit and go pursue this thing full time as it's blowing up. <laughs> As you trace the early development of Oculus, this is uh, Palmer Lucky's company that is uh, exploring this new avenue of virtual reality. One of the things that is a theme that comes up again and again is what an intriguing figure Palmer Lucky himself is. And at one point you uh, have this uh, Brandon uh, Uribe who becomes a really important collaborator with her. Uh, you yep. have him saying that there was there was something magical about this young man. Not that he did everything right, and not that he was polished and and uh, even kind of fully on top of every aspect of every single thing. But there were some things that were really impressive about him, and particularly when one thinks about some of the high stake situations in which he had to step and you know, for instance, unveil various prototypes of what was being developed and speak about this in a way that would be compelling to the rest of the world. Uh, that's right. a really important ingredient in why uh, this was so successful so quickly. Yeah, I think as I, at this point, after you know talking to Palmer almost every day for the past three and a half years, I, I think I know him almost as well as anyone in the world. And, and, and it sort of clicked for me recently. Who, who he reminds me of, or maybe the best way to describe him, to my grandma or to, to somebody, is he, he reminds me of a, of a, of a, of a grown-up version of, of, Kevin, uh, of Kevin McAllister, played by Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone. You know, he's this sort of fast-talking, very precocious, almost a bit of a know-it-all, but he's so charming and charismatic that, you know, that you, that you love him and, and, and there's something magnetic about him. Um, and, you, you know, he has a good heart deep down, um, and, and that was perfect for, like, like you were saying, that, that Brendan had mentioned, you know, at the, at the time, people did think that virtual reality was a joke. And that's not just people like you and I, or, you know, maybe we just didn't even think about it. But particularly for this to work, they were going to need to raise a lot of money. And investors and venture capitalists had no interest in putting money into VR because it had historically been a major loss. Um, and so you needed somebody to go out there and evangelize this technology and talk about why he was slaving away in that trailer and why and what he believed the future could be and so he was um sort of the perfect person to um be leading this revolution um especially uh with regards to bringing it to the public and, th and there was you know that that word magical was something that came up several times in my conversations with people and, and part of it too is that he's 19 you know i 
I don't know what you were doing when you were 19, but... Uh, I wasn't I, doing I was, this. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking last night that at age 21, I started a book club at my college, and I couldn't even sustain that. So I was like, wow, and this kid at 19 starts an entire company that right. the world. Exactly. One of my favorite moments is when you talk about how you know some of his advisors around him were kind of weighing the balance that... that that Palmer Lucky could sometimes get a little too exuberant. His answers might be, you know, a little too long or a little too involved or whatever. Right. They were trying to figure out how do we rein him in and yet not tamp him down, because tamp down Palmer Lucky was the worst thing. Uh, I mean, he can't be quite unbridled, but he just needs to figure out ways to uh, be maybe just a touch less puppy-like and a little more assured and confident and just trying to figure out what what is that mix and 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 time and time again he actually figures that out amazingly well and that's uh in and of itself a really great part of this story i'm speaking with blake j harris about his book the history of the future oculus facebook and the revolution that swept virtual reality one thing i want to make sure we touch on for just a moment is you've already said that one problem with this was in terms of attracting the right kind of interest and eventually investment, is that virtual reality had been kind of a non-starter. It had uh, not not done all that well in its right. earliest incarnation. So there was sort of that blot on it to the point where some people wondered if we should even call this, this thing virtual reality because it sort of yep. has this stigma. But there was another problem that, in a sense, is just the opposite. And um, this is what you write in uh, Chapter 8 of the book. Uh, uh, they're talking about, so for Oculus to succeed, they had to do more than just sell a product. This is true of selling any disruptive technology to consumers. And of course, it's true of all advertising to some degree as well. But what made this proposition even more difficult was that unlike most disruptive innovations, be it a car, television, or smartphone, the Oculus Rift, that was the kind of the main object here that that Palmer right. Lucky had created. The Oculus Rift was not an immediate upgrade over something similar that had come before. There was no horse and carriage to point to and say, wouldn't you prefer to ride in a car? Uh, nothing like that could be said because nobody had ever tried to sell a mass market virtual reality headset before. I had not ever stopped. I don't think that ever would have occurred to me that that in and of itself would be a really serious and vexing issue. Yeah, and, and it really was, and and it, and it changed the way they marketed and messaged the product. And 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 you no, know, thinking about it, though, I'm not sure if I ever explicitly say the best comparison probably is personal computers and the personal computer revolution of the '70s. And you know, now the computers are a part of our daily lives and a, really a part of everything we do. We think back to that you know, to a time where we hear that phrase, you know, PC revolution, and, and we think of it as this exciting thing that almost happened overnight. But, but, but if you actually look at it, you know, in the late 1970s, Apple launched their first um, computer and basically, you know, it's sort of considered like the darling and the um, personification of that era. And, and it's true, Apple was super successful. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak seemed to come out of nowhere and have this new product. Um, but, but then you also think that, you know, my family didn't own our first computer until 1995. So even though this thing came out and would go on to be very successful, it didn't really reach the mainstream until 15 years later. What it did was it reached um, an enthusiast crowd like this did with virtual reality. 
And then also a productivity crowd. You know, for, for the most part, computers were only being purchased by businesses and, and professionals in the 80s. Um, and, and I think we're seeing a little bit of the same thing here with virtual reality, where it's becoming very useful for medical training and other sorts of uh, training in different areas. Uh, I don't think it's going to take 15 years for this to become much more ubiquitous, but it really did it did and does suffer from this fundamental problem of, you know, how, how do you sell it to someone? How do you say that, you know, yes, you spend $400 today, but then you won't have to spend X and X on this, or it'll make your life easier in this way. Um, and then you have this other problem of, of that, that always happens with new mediums, which is that you really have to sort of experience it for yourself and that you can't really advertise it on a previous medium, by which I mean, like, it's really hard to sell television on the radio because, or at least at, at the point, if you didn't know what television was, because, you ha- you know, it's, it's this new medium and you really have to, and, and, and to really demonstrate it, you have to see it um, and see its benefits. Right. And one of the best parts of the book is when you describe over and over again the experience that they had at various conventions and trade shows and so on where they would demonstrate what was going on and uh, and 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 would stir up such immense excitement again and again yep. and again and i thought one of the one of their smartest things was when uh, they decided at, at one point, this is Palmer, uh, Lucky, and a couple of his closest friends at one of the first big reveals. They said before they even got started, they had agreed on one sacred objective. Don't oversell the experience. In other words, don't don't tell people how fabulous this is going to be when they put this <laughs> thing on their head. Let them put this thing on their head, experience virtual reality, and then let them generate the enthusiasm uh but don't oversell it on the front end i think that's a really intriguing notion yeah it was something that i really respected um about those early founders and the company um and and, you know i i certainly have my opinions of decisions that they've made over the past five years some are good some are bad some philosophies i like and some i don't like but i think that really just speaks to the integrity of those founders um because you know there was a there was a practical business reason for that but those those four guys also were just the sort of people that 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 didn't want to sell you um, you know something they, they didn't they didn't want to um, take advantage of you. They wanted they're very genuine guys and they wanted to tell you exactly what they had and 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 you know let you see in in your mind what the next iterations are going to be. Um, and that that was great for a while and it was successful for them. But then their success brought in competition, and then they had competitors who did the did differently, and then it becomes more of a complicated situation where your competitor is, you know, promising promising customers the moon, and you're trying to uh, retain your original philosophy and integrity, um, and then by contrast, you look bad, even though it might take them years to finally deliver the moon, if ever. Right. Exactly. Um- well, you, you, you describe so much of this in such amazing detail, including one of my favorite stories from early on when they are flying overseas and they are, f- they are flying with one of their earliest prototypes and they get stopped by the TSA agents who wonder <laughs> what in the world is this strange looking device and so on. And it's, it just kind of gives you a sense of, of, of the new territory that they are charting. <laughs> and of course, ultimately, in a sense, the bigger this gets, and as they slowly work, they realize how much more needs to be done, more and more people need to be brought in, and ultimately, uh, this deal is made with Facebook. 
Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, and we'll leave it to our listeners to really explore just how messy this became. But give us a sense of just how shocking this was and the huge backlash that occurred. I mean, why did so many people feel betrayed when this young upstart company called Oculus, uh, in a sense, sold itself for billions of dollars to Facebook? Yeah, great uh, great question, pivotal moment in the story. Um, and, you know, part of it is because, as we've talked about to this point, Oculus really was a gaming company. You know, everyone there believed that at some point this could change education and medical training and all these other grand moral imperative ideas. But for the, but for the short term, their business plan to get there was through gaming. Their, their, their tagline was to step into the game. They were all um, gamers and, and, and um and that was really their core audience. And so if they were going to sell the company, which seemed unlikely already because they were the scrappy underdog and had gotten this money from Kickstarter and had all these backers that were following their every move and feeling like they were part of this team from afar, um, you know, you would have assumed they might have sold to Sony or to Microsoft or to even Nintendo. But then they sold to Facebook, which was a bit of a head scratcher for those of us on the outside, um, though it begins to make a little bit more, and I'll get into that in a second. But, but um, so that was a bit of a surprise. People also felt like the company had just sold out in general, um, which they didn't like. But then the fact that it was Facebook was a big problem with um, this enthusiast crowd, and potentially now with a wider audience, as some revelations have come out about Facebook over the past couple of years. Um, but they just didn't trust Facebook. You know, te- virtual tech. Uh, sorry, virtual reality is a very intimate technology. You're putting it on your face. And as I mentioned earlier, it's tracking your head movements that it can show you what this, you know, what the computer graphics need to be generated. But, but that's, but that's a lot of data that's being collected to do those things. And, and, and those um, early adopters were really skeptical of what Facebook would do with that data and what their ultimate objectives were. And I guess, you know, it remains to be seen um, because we're still at the very early stages, but I think that they were right to be skeptical of Facebook um, but at the same time, it's a it's it's a love hate situation where um, these people um, hate Facebook. There was this tremendous backlash. But not only did Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook spend three billion dollars to acquire Oculus, they've also invested about two to three billion dollars over the past few years. So we wouldn't be where we are today without Facebook. Um, but maybe maybe a slower path um, that didn't include a social media giant is, would be the way to go. And 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 the last point to just hit from. You know, why Facebook? From Facebook's perspective, uh, Mark explicitly, I think the book opens with him talking about how he sees this as the next computing revolution after smartphones, um, and that, you know, one day everyone's going to have a pair of glasses and, and be experiencing virtual reality. And, and for them, it's the social component. And, and that's something I can get behind, because, you know, go back to my, my famous grandmother. Um, I love the idea that I could put on my headset here and she could put on the headset where she is now. And then we can instantly be together and then we can snap our fingers and be in Italy or snap our fingers and, you know, be in Milwaukee, you know, whatever it is, the case. Um, and so Facebook really saw the social um, potential there, uh, though they have been slow to really um, implement that and take advantage of that since the release of the headset. Right. And of course, that story in and of itself is fascinating as well. Kind of the maybe the ideological mismatch between Oculus yeah. and Facebook oh, really and, 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 and the, 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 the difficult marriage that uh, ultimately led to the ouster of Palmer Lucky himself. In 20 seconds, how's Palmer Lucky doing today? Fortunately, he's doing great. There was a period of time where 
I was very worried about him <laughs> as someone who was talking to him frequently because um, Oculus was his baby and it was taken away from him, he felt. And uh, he was no longer with the company that he was the face of and this industry that he was the face of. But he started a new company with a, a bunch of folks from Oculus called Onderal, which is a defense technology startup. And uh, they are thriving. So, so he's doing well, but there's a lot of missing pieces between his uh, resurrecting his career and uh, him selling to Facebook. So, you know, check out the book or at least just Google it and see that, you know, it's a very interesting true life story that I was just lucky to get to tell. Extraordinary story and a great, great book. Again, The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality, published by Day Street and imprint of, of William Morrow. Blake J. Harris, congratulations on yet another fantastic book. And thank you for being on The Morning Show to talk about it. Thanks so much for talking about it and for the kind words about the book. I really enjoyed it, and hopefully I'll come back uh, four years from now when I finish my next book, whatever that will be. Very good. Thanks again.